Uh, my name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. want to welcome all of you who are family and regular tenders and all that stuff around here, but also want to extend a welcome to you if you're a guest. You might be someone who's come in from the neighborhood, or you're here with friends, or maybe somebody that's been watching online and finally decided to jump back in here. We're really excited that you're here, and we, we genuinely don't want anybody to stay a guest. We're glad you're a guest, but we'd love for you to uh, make the jump from guest to family, and if I personally can be any help in that, please let me know. Uh, we'd love for you to feel at home around here, and we're, uh, we're in an ongoing study in Genesis. What we see here at the outset is a picture of hospitality, right? And the hospitality that we see in the first part of Genesis 18 is not unique uh, to, to this region or this area. You know, it's the way in which Abraham responds to the arrival of these strangers is not necessarily peculiar. It's sort of customary during this time to treat people the way he treats them to, uh, you know, we, I mean, we see the urgency of it. It says several times in this text, he's running or he's encouraging people to cook something quickly, or he's selecting a calf rapidly or whatever. We see the urgency. We see the generosity. We see the sacrifice of it. We see the supplication of it, even in the tone in which he, uh, he approaches these strangers and says, Hey, if I found favor with you, you know, will you stay and, and receive this meal? The hospitality of it is an important point here. We don't want to miss. And I think we kind of all get the idea of hospitality. We've seen it done really well. We've seen it done really poorly. You probably have stories of moments that didn't go as well or moments that are good. I was, uh, I was in a band for a long time, like in the 90s, and we did a lot of touring. And part of the way we toured the country was a Christian band. Part of the way we did our touring was by um, basically our contract said, hey, we'll come and do a show wherever you want. We can share the gospel. We just need you to feed us dinner and find us a place to sleep. So some of the nights we were sleeping on floors and some of the nights we were sleeping on couches. Sometimes we had really great dinners and sometimes we had chicken McNuggets. And we didn't complain about that or whatever. But there, there, you can imagine there are some funny hospitality stories uh, that sort of emerged as I'm traveling the country for those years. And one of them uh, that I remember, but I, I don't think I've shared with you before, we were doing a show in Southern California. I won't tell you the name of the church or, uh, you know, who all's involved because you might know them, but we were doing this concert and uh, we set up all our gear. We did the sound check. We're ready to go. And that's usually when we had dinner, but there was no dinner served. So I went to the youth pastor and I said, Hey, you know, uh, part of our contract is that you're going to feed us. So like, are we going to eat? Like what's going to happen for dinner? And he goes, Oh, I didn't even look at that contract. And I was like, Oh, well, that would have been helpful. He goes, Oh, you know what? We'll get you something after the concert's over. So we do the concert. It's like two hours long, whatever. We pack up our gear. We load it back in the van. By the time we get all done with that, it's like 10, 10 30 at night. We're starving. And uh, I said to the youth pastor again, I was like, okay, so we're going to we're going to get some food, you know, like what's the deal? And he's like, Oh yeah, sure. You guys can get food. Like, what do you want to get? And I was like, I mean, if we're going to, yeah, okay. So like, well, I don't know. What do you guys want? And the band was like, let's get Chinese food. So I said, is there a Chinese food place? And he says, yeah. So he gives us directions, this place up the street. We get there right as like, right before they're getting ready to close. The waitress says, yeah, you can order something, but we're going to shut down the kitchen right after that. So we sit at this big table. We order some food. But when we, when we open the menu, we realize that the place the guy sent us to, there wasn't a single menu item that was less than like 20 bucks. Right now we're all like, 19, 20. We're like young kids. We don't have a ton of money. We're living on floors and whatever. So it's going to be an expensive dinner. And the band is like, how are we going to pay for this? I'm like, we'll just put it on the band credit card and we'll figure it out later. Like, don't worry, just eat. We're starving. Get some food. So we order food. It's going to be like a $250 dinner with all of us. But, uh, after we order the food, we're kind of sitting there talking and then the youth pastor and his wife show up, right? They come in and they're like, Hey, we knew you guys were here and we were kind of hungry too. So we thought maybe we'd join you for dinner. And we were like, in my head, I thought that's cool. Cause now maybe we use that guy's credit card, you know? Uh, 
But so he sits down and it's too late for them to order anything. But I'm like, that's okay. Cause we ordered all these meals. We'll just put it on the, you know, we got the lazy Susan thing. No offense. If your name is Susan, we'll put that in the middle and you can just share whatever we ordered. So we do that. We all eat together. We have a great meal. It's all fine and whatever. The bill comes, I pull out the credit card, kind of hoping I'm going to see some movement from this youth pastor guy and no dice. So I just pay for it, whatever. We walk out to the parking lot. We're getting ready to go. We're saying our goodbyes. He's like, thanks for the concert. And he goes, Hey, I feel bad that we ate, you know, some of your food that you ordered. And I was like, no, it's fine. It was all sharing anyway. It doesn't matter. And he goes, I, I just, I need, I feel like I need to like kick in a little bit for that. And I was like, I mean, there was a contract. I didn't say that, but I was like, okay. He goes, just let me, let me just do a little something. And I was like, I already paid for it. It doesn't really matter. He goes, no, I really want to do something. And then he does that thing where you like shake somebody's hand, but there's cash in the hand, right? He's like, this is for you guys just to kind of offset it a little bit. I'm like, that's kind of cool, right? It feels like the moment gets a little redeemed. I feel like the guy did the right thing. I get in the van with the band. And I was like, that was actually cool. He said he wanted to help out with the cost of the dinner. And, uh, he gave me, gave me this cash and I hand it back to the woman who handles all of our accounting and stuff. And uh, I start driving and she goes, is this what he gave you? And I was like, yeah. And and she goes, it's $4, four $1 bills. Right. And, uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know, in some ways it might've been better if he hadn't done anything, right. You can kind of look at that and go hospitality wise, Maybe it's better just to eat the Chinese food and call it a night than to give four $1 bills. But what are you going to do? It's a pastor, right? Pastors, what you, you know, now you all should be happy that here at Fullerton Freeway and got no pastors. Well, we got our shepherds and they're very generous, right? They're very, very generous. I got lots of stories like that. Lots of stories where hospitality went a little south and, and stories where hospitality was really great. Here we see Abraham respond, and, and there's, a, there's a distinction in the text that's important for you to note. It tells us, we get a little inside information, right? So Moses, who's writing this chapter, he tells us from the outset that what we're dealing with here is not just a visitor, it's not just a stranger, but that it's the Lord, right? You'll see that in verse 1, it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. That word that's translated Lord in our English translations is the word for Yahweh, right? That's the word for God. So this isn't just... A visitor, it's not just a stranger. When it says Lord there, this is God. God has come to dinner. And that's interesting from a trivia standpoint because it's kind of the only place in the Old Testament where God has a meal with his people, right? Where he dwells with them, where he sits down at a table and eats some food. In the New Testament, we see that a lot, right? Jesus uh, uses the table. He uses mealtime as a great place to connect with people, to serve people, to love them well. In the Old Testament, we don't have a lot of pictures of God doing that, except here in Genesis 18, right? Genesis 18, God comes and he sits down at a dining table, right? Outside this tent. So, so we're dealing with God here and two angelic visitors. We'll hear more about that as we get into the chapters that follow. But there's three of them, supernatural visitors, And we know that because Moses tells us that, that that's Yahweh, but Abraham didn't know that from the outset. And the way we know that is that when Abraham addresses them, he does not use the word Yahweh. He does not use God's name. He uses the word Adonai, which can be a title for God, but in common usage just meant master. It just meant someone who is of higher station than myself, right? So the posture of Abraham as he speaks, it says in verse two, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He said, oh Lord, the word that's translated Lord there is not the word for Yahweh. It's the word for Adonai. It just means master, right? It means boss, right? He says, master, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So Abraham takes a posture of servitude. He takes a posture of humility. He sees these these three strangers and he rushes to them and says, can I serve you? As was the custom in this area at the time. Even the idea of inviting someone to foot washing was both a way to serve them and to assess whether or not they were a threat to you. Because if someone would uh, neglect to have their feet washed, there was a, there was a, it was a viewed as them positioning themselves away from vulnerability, right? You don't want to get into a vulnerable position. If you were offering hospitality to someone who was a threat to you, they would not wash their feet. So you would offer them foot washing as a way to get a sense of, is, is this a safe interaction, right? But Abraham offers this hospitality. Not only does he offer it, uh, he humbles himself, but there's sacrifice here. There's urgency, right? It says, uh, it says in six, well, actually he says, let me do this thing for you. They say, do as you have said. Verse six, Abraham went quickly. There's that word again, into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf. There he ran to get the, you know, tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And he took the curds and the milk and the calf that he prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they, while they ate. The picture here is, is beautiful and it's a picture of generosity and hospitality and sacrifice as a part of the character of a God follower, right? And, th- and that's not just true in the Old Testament, but that continues to be true for us today. Hospitality is a big deal. We were just talking about elder nominations. If you look at the criteria for elders or overseers in First Timothy, it says hospitality should be a part of what our elders are all about. That should be a thing that flows out of them, right? We, we can look at passages like Romans fifteen seven that says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There is a sense in which when we are hospitable, when there is an urgency to serving other people, when we welcome people into our homes to serve them, we're not only acknowledging the fact that Christ has served us, but we're putting Christ on display in the lives of other people. The revelation of Christ happens when we are generous and sacrificial and hospitable to other people. Not only is that something that that we're called to, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's, It's likely that the writer to the Hebrews is pointing at Genesis 18 and going, Hey, you better be cool to strangers who show up outside of your tent, because you might be entertaining angels. Well, We can look at that and go, oh, yeah, that's true, biblically. But I would want to say to you, the reason for being generous and sacrificial and hospitable is not because you might accidentally be taking care of angels. If that happens, weird, but cool. I mean, lucky you. More normally, we are hospitable because it puts the love of Christ on display, right? So if you're thinking, well, I'm going to be nice to my neighbors and I'm going to invite people over for dinner. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to care for them because who knows? They might be angels you're sort of missing the point, right? It isn't that you might accidentally have the chance to do something nice for angels. It's rather that being hospitable is indicative of the character and nature of Christ who did lots of connection at the table, who cared about that. In fact, even the incarnation, right? So let's just think about, think about John 1.14 for a second when it talks about the coming of Christ. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh, that's talking about Jesus, and dwelt among us, right? Lived among us resided among us, that sense of hospitality and connection, that, that nature of dwelling among us was prophesied in the Old Testament that the incarnation of Jesus was essentially God coming to be with us, right? 
the hospitality of God towards his people is then reflected when we are hospitable to one another. So it's not the main point of this passage, but it's important for us to look at it and go, I want to reflect Jesus. He's been kind and generous and sacrificial to me. I should be kind and generous and sacrificial to other people. There should be an urgency in me to serve my neighbors and to serve people I come into contact with, to invite them in and to sit down at a table with them and to care well for them because that puts Jesus on display. Around here at Fullerton Free, we've got our, uh, our vision pillars, right? Which you've probably heard more than you want to hear them unless you're a guest. But we talk around here about things like being, being a community that's full of radiant peace and revolutionary kindness, right? Prophetic engagement and unforced appeal. I will tell you that those things manifest no place better than at a shared dinner table, than over a coffee table, in the living room of your house, uh, just outside the front door of your tent, if you will, right? That is the place where we put radiant peace and revolutionary. It's not enough for us just to kind of go, yeah, we want to be peaceful people. We want to be kind people. It, It gets legs when we do that in the lives of others, right? Abraham does that here. So he he prepares this meal for them. He stands to one side uh, while they are eating. And then look what happens in verse 9. Back to Genesis chapter 18. In verse 9, these visitors, they say to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. This is the first place where Abraham might have got a clue that he was dealing with with supernatural guests and not normal guests, right? Because remember, if you were with us last week, his wife's name has not always been Sarah. It was Sarai up until fairly recently. And there aren't very many people who would know that her name was changed. Certainly not people he's never met before. The fact that the guest shows up at the table and says, we want to talk to Sarah with an H. Well, where is your wife, Sarah? The fact that he knows her name, number one, is weird. The fact that he knows her new name is provocative, right? There's something really interesting going on there. He says, where's Sarah, your wife? I also want you to note that it's interesting and it's important to note that God comes to dine at this tent with Abraham, but not just with Abraham. He sees and he cares about Sarah. And we're gonna see that more even as we read on in this text. He recognizes that she's there and he cares about her. He wants her to hear. He's addressing this thing to her as well. I think, Sometimes when we think about the Abrahamic covenant, right? And we, not to use like a big language, but when we talk about God's promises to Abraham, we tend to think of it so singularly that we feel like, well, God's focused on Abraham and everybody else that's around him is just blessed by extension. And while that's true at some level, it's important to miss, not to miss the fact that God actually cares about his wife, that God cares about the people around, that God cares about the ways in which this will impact other generations, that Sarah is not forgotten in this thing. I think, I think that's an important distinction to note, that when God sits down to have this meal, he says, I, I'd like to talk to your wife. Where is your wife? I want to have a conversation with her as well. Where is Sarah? And Abraham says, well, she's in the tent. Now, the way, these, uh, the way these nomadic tents were set up, there were several compartments. There was like an exterior compartment that included the space in front of the tent. And that was a place where you did all your hosting and your hospitality. But there was a back part of the tent that was a curtain even where food was prepared, where the women would stay. Um, I'm not saying that's right, but that's the way this is laid out. So, so these guests would not have known, except for the supernatural knowledge of God, they would not have known that she was there behind this curtain. God says, where's your wife? And it's important for us to see that God sees her, that he wants to communicate something to her. And in fact, what he, he, he reaffirms the promise. So look at verse 10. Abraham says she's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Well, God knew she was listening. He's reaffirming this promise. Some, some commentators and theologians will say that the very purpose for this meal was for God to communicate and reaffirm the promise to Sarah because it's possible, and this is just conjecture, but it's possible that Abraham had not clearly communicated the reaffirmation of the promise for Isaac to his wife, Sarah. It's possible that he had not said to Sarah, hey, the covenant's not going to be with Ishmael. It's going to be with our son, Isaac, who's eventually going to be born. That part of the reason why God sits down at this table in the first place is to make sure she doesn't miss that this promise is for her too. I want you to see the care and the concern and the personal connection of God for this woman who was beat up and tired and neglected, right? God says, I'm going to come back in a year. One other thing he does here, and we've seen him do this before, but he gives more specificity than we've had before. So when he reaffirms that they will have a son whose name is Isaac, this time he gives a timeline. He puts a ticking clock on it. He says, I'm going to come back at this time next year and you will have your son, right? That's a one-year clock. They haven't had that before. Before, what they've had is, hey, you're going to have a son. You'll be the father of many nations. You won't be able to count them all. Your friends will be my friends. Your enemies will be my enemies. But they haven't had a date. They haven't had a time. Now God says, within earshot of Sarah, on purpose, I'll be back here in a year. And that baby will be born. The clock starts to tick, right? What is that? Well, it's again him being generous to Sarah and to Abraham. It's him showing with specificity when this promise will be fulfilled. So God says this. He says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. But look at her response, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That, that sentence, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, indicates that she's postmenopausal. So not only has she not had a kid, now she's not capable of having a kid. She was barren before. Now she's well beyond the time when she would be able to have a child. It says, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, to herself, not audibly, she laughed to herself, right? She laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's skeptical. She's cynical. She's doubtful. And she laughs to herself. The way of women had ceased. They are old. See the way she self, I I hate the way she self identifies here. She says, she, she refers to herself as worn out. She goes, now I'm worn out. Abraham's an old timer. She's like, now I'm going to have pleasure. By the way, the, the word there that she uses points directly at sexual pleasure. So there's some indication at this point that Abraham and Sarah are not even trying to have kids anymore. Like that's not just even a thing they're trying. God had made the promise, but in their physical activity, they have neglected to even attempt to make that go down. So her response is one of cynicism. It's a response of doubt. It's a, it's a skeptical response. And she laughed. Now there is a tendency as you look at this, and I've heard it taught this way, there's a tendency for people to immediately look at Sarah and go, how dare she, right? How dare she laugh at God? Let me, let me ask you, before you do that, before you point an accusatory finger, if you're tempted to, at Sarah in her laughter and in her question, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Not, I just want you to think about this. Have you yourself ever been sick of hearing that things are going to be okay? Have you, ever, have you ever been sick of having people go, oh, it's going to work out. You'll be fine, right? Oh, don't worry about it. It's going to turn out fine. You'll be good. Just wait. Have you, I'm not asking rhetorically. I want to see you raise your hand. Has there been a time in your life when you've been so tired that you didn't want to hear another person tell you that your situation was going to be fine? Yeah? 
All, all of us, right? We've all been in places where it's like, I get that you're trying to be nice to me, but that's not helpful because you know what? I don't think it is going to be fine. That's where Sarah's at, part of where she's at. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever given up on a dream in despair and moved on? Have you ever given up on a dream, a hope, in despair? And if you're a Dodgers fan, you have. (laughs) Don't clap. It's sad. I'm grieving, right? Don't tell me it's going to be okay. All joking aside, let's get back to the serious point I'm trying to make here. Have you in your life ever hoped or dreamed for something and it didn't happen and it didn't happen and you wanted it so bad that you finally went, I can't keep hoping for this. I can't keep wanting it. It hurts too much. I can't, I can't do it. And so I just have to forget the dream and I got to move on to the next thing. Have you ever been there? Maybe not all of you, but some of you have. Some of you have abandoned a dream. That's where Sarah's at. That's where Sarah's at. Let me ask you one more question. Have you ever protected yourself from getting your hopes up or getting hurt again? Have you ever protected yourself from getting your hopes up or getting hurt again? Somebody goes, oh, we got a new thing we can try. Or, oh, I want to introduce you to this other person. Or, oh, there's this potential job posting that I think I want to tell you about. And you're like, I can't do the roller coaster of hope. I can't do the roller coaster of anticipation. I can't do the waiting. I can't do the frustration. Have you ever gotten to the place where you put your guard up because you just couldn't deal with the pain of being disappointed again? Been there where you don't want to get your hope up again. And so you just don't. That's where Sarah's at. Before you point a finger at her and say, how dare you laugh at God? She's at a spot where she's sick of hearing people say, oh, God made you a promise. It's going to be fine. She's sick of hearing people say that sort of thing. She's given up on her dream in despair and moved on. She's protecting herself from getting her hopes up. We hear that indicated in her question. Really? Now? My husband's old. I'm wrung out. I'm worn out. There's no pleasure in my life. Like, what? What? How's this going to happen now? And she laughs to herself. Before you point an accusatory finger, I I think it's worth saying we've all been there in one way or another. We've all been in a place where our hopes are dashed or where we're disappointed or we're just worried about about getting our hopes up again. So look at what happens next. It says, Sarah, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Sometimes this gets taught uh, in, in a certain tone. It gets taught in a, in a tone of uh, judgment, right? This can be taught, if you're not careful, the way you read it is God looks at Abraham and says, why did your wife just laugh at the thing I said, right? How dare she? Do you know who I am? I'm a supernatural visitor. How dare she laugh? I just said she's going to have a kid. I don't want to hear any laughing, Right? It can be taught, and and that may be an over over exaggeration, but there are people who look at this text and go, this is God rebuking them for the laugh. I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is God punishing Sarah for her doubt and for her skepticism and for her guardedness. I don't think that's what this is. Why? Because that's not indicative of the posture of God through the rest of the scripture, certainly not indicative of the character of Jesus, right? I don't think he's saying, why did she laugh? That was inappropriate. I think he's saying, I don't get the laughter because God is capable of anything. If we're laughing about something, I, I want to be in on the joke. But like I just said something that's not really funny because God is capable of this. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? I think God here is pointing out that he's not in on the joke. 
The thing that seems that she's got skepticism about, he has no skepticism about. The thing that she's lost confidence in, he has full confidence in. Why? Because it's confidence in himself and his character and his ability to do what he says he's going to do. He says, why is she laughing? God is capable. There's nothing that's too hard for God. And we see that idea affirmed again and again in the Bible. Job chapter 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In Luke chapter 1, verse 37, when the angel tells Mary that she's going to have the Lord Jesus, part of what he says to her in verse 37 of Luke 1 is, For nothing will be impossible with God. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is talking about uh, wealthy people getting into heaven, Jesus looked at them in verse 26 of Matthew 19 and said to them, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The Bible says it again and again and again and again. There is nothing that's too hard for God. So here are these supernatural guests. Here is the Lord Yahweh sitting at the tent with Abraham, Sarah behind a little curtain. And he says, why did she laugh? Well, first of all, Abraham wouldn't have known that she laughed because she laughed to herself. But God knows. That tells you something about the knowledge and nature of God. He says, why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for God? He reaffirms the promise one more time. Back to Genesis chapter 18. He says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, right? For she was afraid. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Again, this text has been, I think, kind of abused in some ways. There are people who will look at this text and they'll go, ah, Sarah lied to God. She didn't just lie. Lying's bad, right? We all know that. Lying's bad, very bad. You lie to God, oh, that's the worst. What's the worst thing you can do? God is sitting there with you and you're going to lie to him? Oh, no. Wait for the lightning to fall. But before, before we point that accusatory finger at her again, why did she lie? Well, it tells us in the text she lied because she was afraid. What's she afraid of? Sarah feels fear. And what she's feeling is this. Oh, man. I can't be honest about how I actually feel. Oh, man. I can't be honest about how I actually feel. I, I can't say that, that the idea of me having a baby is laughable. That'll get me in trouble. Well, why does she feel like that? Well, part of it, I mean, to be honest with you, I remember this text, Genesis 18, being taught to me as a child. And you want to know the the application points I walked away from when it was taught to me as a child? The application points I remember from Genesis 18 are these. You never know when God's going to show up at your tent. So you better keep a clean house. And I don't mean that literally. I mean that figuratively. If your life is a house, you never know when God's going to show up. So make sure you've always got some flour prepared. Make sure you've always got a calf you can sacrifice. Make sure you've always got a dinner table laid out. Right? Make sure you're ready when Jesus comes to visit to put on a grand show. Can I tell you, that isn't what this text teaches. Number two, the other point of application I remember from the time when I was a kid is people saying like, oh, you, you would put on a grand show if you knew Jesus was watching. If you knew Jesus was going to come to your house today, you'd get it all cleaned up and you'd make a fancy dinner and you'd put on your best tux because you knew he was coming to town. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit is inside of you all the time. <laughs> He's with you all the time. So you better keep your house clean always, right? And you go, how do I even live up to that? Can I tell you, literally, that sentiment is the exact opposite of what this text shows. 
Sarah is scared of that. She's scared to be honest about how she's feeling because the Lord is sitting there. And so she denies it. Does she tell a lie to God? Yes. Is that bad? Yes. But find the punishment. Find her punishment. You can't find it. There, there is no punishment. And you could say, well, look at what God says. So let's do that. 15. Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And God said, he said, no, but you did laugh. Now there again, you could look at this and go, oh, he rebukes her. He's like, yes, you did. I heard you laugh. You know, I can see inside of you. Like I know your, I know your every intention of your heart and you can't tell me you didn't laugh because I know you did, right? If that's the way you read this, then your picture of God is very different than the picture of Christ. Because what God is doing here is he's simply saying, you don't have to lie about it and you don't have to be afraid because I know you. You can be behind a curtain and you can be laughing in inside your heart. You can be skeptical and doubtful inside your heart and I still see you. And I still care about you. And I'm not getting up from this table. I am with you. I am with you. We work so hard to get our tent cleaned up for Jesus. But that isn't what this is. That's not what this is displaying. Sarah feels fear of admitting how she actually feels. And God's response in 15 is not shaming or punishment. It's simply a glimpse into the fact that God knows everything. Remember what Jesus does with the woman at the well? What does he do with the woman at the well? He goes, oh, go get your husband and I'll talk to her about living water. And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, yeah, good answer. You don't have a husband. You've had a bunch and the guy you're living with now is not your husband, right? I see you. What's he doing? Is he shaming her? Is he trying to make her cry? Is he trying to make her feel embarrassed or guilty? No. What, what does she say at the end of that story? She goes, come and meet a guy who told me everything I ever did. Why? Because he's sitting there at the well having an interaction with her. He's offering her living water. She's not scared of the honesty. In fact, she's set free by the honesty of it. The Bible says again and again that God knows the truth of who we are. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4 say this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. The gospel writers will say Jesus didn't need man's testimony about himself because he knew it was in a man's heart. Sarah says, I, I didn't laugh. And what's she doing? She's nervous about being honest about how she actually feels. Did she laugh? Yeah. Is she skeptical about the promise of God? Yeah. She's nervous about being honest about how she feels. And what God does for her in this last section is not rebuke her for the lie, but instead say, I know you doubt this and I'm still with you. I know you're scared. I know you're hurt and I'm still with you. God wants Sarah to know that he sees her. And that he knows her, even in her mess. That he sees her skepticism. That he sees her guardedness. That he sees her despair. That he sees her doubt. And he's with her still. Church, he wants you to feel the same thing. Are you in a position in your life where you don't want to hear another person tell you it's going to be okay? God knows you feel that way. Are you at a place where you've given up on a dream and you've moved on because it's just too hard to hope? God knows you feel that way. Are, are you at a spot where you've got your guard up because you just don't want to ride the roller coaster of hope and disappointment anymore? God sees your dukes 
And I think what God is doing here in Genesis 18 is he's reaching out to Sarah and he's pushing her fists down. And he's saying, I see you. And he says the same thing to us. What God is doing with Sarah is he's inviting her to stop laughing at him and to start laughing with him. Turn with me to Genesis 21. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but in a couple of weeks we'll be in Genesis 21 when Isaac is born, right? When the baby Isaac is born. And look at this. In Genesis 21, when Isaac is born in verse 5, it says this. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. What do we see? What's the laughter in Genesis 21? The laughter in Genesis 21 is the laugh of celebration. What she says in Genesis 21 is God has given me the laugh of celebration. What is God doing for Sarah in Genesis 18? He's saying, I hear you laughing at me. I hear you laughing at my promise because of your doubt, because of your hurt, because of your pain, because of your skepticism, because of the road you've walked that's got you to a place where you feel like you've got to have your dukes up and it even makes you comfortable with lying to me. But put your dukes down because I want you to stop laughing at me and let's us laugh together. He invites her to laugh with him. When the baby's born, right? To turn it loose. I, 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 man, I don't, I don't know all of you here. But let me just say something to you. And I, I don't want you to miss this. Every set of ears in this place, listen close. Your fear and doubt and pain doesn't hurt God. And it doesn't scare him. Your charades don't fool him. And his friendship and faithfulness are not predicated upon your perfection. You don't have to get your house cleaned up. In fact, the reason he dies for you is that you can't get your house cleaned up. So you don't have to lie. You can laugh and God will go, yeah, I see you. I see you laughing at me. I'm going to make you laugh with me. I'm going to keep my promises to you. In Ephesians chapter 3 Remember in the second prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, he he prays that they, by the power of God's spirit, that the Lord Jesus will be settled down and at home in us. That Jesus would be settled. What is that? That's dwelling. That's, That's basically camping out at our tent. He says, I pray that you'll be strengthened in your inner being by the power of God's spirit, that the Lord Jesus would be settled down and at home in you, and that then you being rooted and established in the love of God will have power together with all the saints to grasp the height and width and depth and length of the unknowable love of Christ and to be filled to a measure of the fullness of God. What does that speak to? What it speaks to is the ability for us to go, my mask is a waste of time with God, right? When I look at God and say, I didn't laugh. I'm not frustrated. I don't have any doubts. I'm not confused. I'm not angry. I'm fine. Everything's good. When we put on that posturing, you might be able to fool the people around you, but you never fool God. He knows who you are. So take the mask off and recognize that your fear and your doubt and your hurt and your anger are not a threat to him. And that his friendship and faithfulness is not predicated upon your perfection. Our doubt, our fear, our pain, it doesn't hurt him. Our charades don't fool him. And his friendship and faithfulness isn't dependent upon us feeling all the right things at every right time. Today, if you're in a spot where you feel like you're sick of hearing that things are going to be okay, or you've given up on your dream and despair and moved on, or if you've ever protected yourself from getting your hopes up, maybe you got your dukes up, I think, I think knowing that God sees you and loves you still is an invitation to drop your guard. And receive the love of Christ that doesn't need you to be shiny to sit down at the table with you.